You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features the veteran music writer and academic Eric Weisbard. Uh, Eric uh, has a, a very long and robust career, and we're going to get into a lot of that through the episode. Uh, he's got a book coming out very soon called Songbooks, The Literature of American Popular Music. That's going to be out in May. But, you know, he was the co-editor of the Spin Alternate Record Guide. He, found, he founded or co-founded the Pop Conference, uh, the, the EMP Music Project. He was working at that museum for a while. We'll get through a lot of it. And I think the, the idea that was kind of going into this one, and I'm probably going to follow up on this in various forthcoming episodes. So I want to get a sense of the music critic, the music journalism culture of the 80s and 90s. Because I feel like that's a story that is not really told, not so much. And Eric was kind of a perfect person to talk to because he's kind of a nexus point for a lot of things. And that will really come across because, I mean, Eric knows everybody. And, you know, there's a lot of people who get mentioned in this. And, you know, I recommend looking into just (laughs) keeping a list, just jotting down the names as as you go through this and looking into everyone. So, uh, you know, in this episode, we'll talk a lot about, you know, Eric his journey through his career kind of push and pull between academia and like writing for a mass audience and you know uh just the his motivations and what drives him through it and what what his interests have been through all of it so here we go this is eric weisbard eric weisbard tell the listeners who you are and what you do i am as of a week or so ago, a full professor of American studies at the University of Alabama. So that could be Identity One. I'm co-editor of the Journal of Popular Music Studies. That's uh, service task two. I'm the longtime organizer and now more emeritus of the pop conference that started at Experience Music Project and continues to this day under the Uh, auspices of the Clive Davis Institute at NYU. I've also, in my time, written a few books, edited the music section at The Village Voice, been record reviews editor at Spin, and scribbled in a lot of different places for a lot of different purposes. All right. So I think the the obvious first question is, is what was the beginning of that? Like, what was your starting point as as a, a, a music writer, but I guess a writer more generally? Yeah, I mean, the starting point was a college radio station at Princeton. So I got interested in almost the most old-fashioned of rock critic ways, a friend named Ken Katkin, who would go on to be a little bit of a player in the indie rock world. Um, When we were both in our um, wandering in the woods before freshman year of college began stint, passed me a cassette tape of Lou Reed uh, compiled by Ellen Willis. Wow. <laughs> and so I was sort of like, hey, the Velvet Underground are really good and I've never heard about them. So I spent, I've, I was fortunate enough in this kind of privileged way of, of all things Ivy to have my dorm room be right above the campus radio station where generations of DJs had held on to records by the thousands. And so I spent the next two or three years just listening feverishly through a college radio station's library, and at the same time figuring out intellectually what I could do to match that interest. So I read cultural studies, I studied history, and essentially after that, my whole life became a kind of do-si-do between those two categories. So when I graduated college and went to the Bay Area. I started as a grad student in history at UC Berkeley, but I also started writing for alternative weeklies out there like the SF Weekly and eventually the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Around what around what time is this? Is it the, the 80s, I guess? The first record review I wrote for the SF Weekly was of um, De La Soul in 1989. And it was basically like, kid from New York area hits Bay Area, says... Y'all aren't really writing much about hip hop. Uh, it's good. Um, 
So that that lasted like a couple of months. um, And then a young writer named Danielle Smith wrote for the Bay Guardian. And I realized there was stronger writing on hip hop to be had in the Bay Area than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that's I think that's right around the time. Like, I guess, like Dell, the Funky Homo Sapien and things like that are just starting to pop up. It was an interesting time in two regards. One was there was a way in which alternative hip hop felt like it was in full bloom. And the other was it was a time when to be in the Bay area was to be surrounded by all these young music writers. I don't want to get off on a, on a crazy naming list, but oh, no, I, um, no, feel free to name a few. Cause I, I think part of the idea is like, I'd really like to get some context for, you know, this, the, the culture around this in this period of time. Cause it's, it's sort of vague in my mind. I mean, a good example would be, there I am starting at UC Berkeley in grad school. Who edits the arts coverage in the UC Berkeley student newspaper? Jason Fine, who would end up basically, you know, becoming a longtime editor at Rolling Stone magazine for years and years and years. Um, You had um, Ann Powers, who I first wrote for and now have been um, in a couple with for more than 30 years. She's writing the weekly um, Street Life column for the SF Weekly. There's um, Chris Norris, who will come around and be an important um, features writer in music magazines. There's um, folks who are a little bit more on the academic side, like Josh Kuhn and Oliver Wang, who are in ethnic studies at UC Berkeley. Wasu is there. Um there was just sort of this endless parade of people. Um, um, I mentioned Danielle. She's an important one. Evelyn McDonald gets her first big editing gig as the SF Weekly music editor for a period of time. Um, it's really a very nice list of people. It was a great community. There's people who are not music people, but become prominent critics like the books critic in the Bay Area back then was Laura Miller, who's now much better known for writing for places like Salon and Slate. Um, So it was just a very welcoming environment to write criticism at the alt-weekly level. Um, Can I tell you one more story from those years? Oh, yeah, go for it. Go for it, yeah. So so there I am doing the do-si-do between grad school and alt-weeklies, and... Tommy Tompkins, who's the arts editor of the San Francisco Bay Guardian, decides that he wants to help me out, but he has no resources. So he says, for $50 a week, I'll let you edit the record review section of the SF of the San Francisco Bay Guardian, so long as you also write a record review. So essentially, for my 50 <laughs> giant US dollars per week, it was my responsibility to write one, three, or four hundred word record review, and then solicit and edit about three others. Um, Now, it may seem that I was being taken advantage of. um, And in, you know, certain sense I was, but it was this incredible training. So my rule was I had to get fast enough to wake up on a Thursday morning and have my personal record review done before lunch. And so I got faster at writing the record reviews. I was also able to reach out to all sorts of people. Um, I never met her in person before she sort of shockingly died. But Renee Christ was somebody who, Rob Sheffield's wife, was somebody who I often edited at the San Francisco Bay Guardian. And it was really fun to call their household and, you know, be like, no, Rob, I'm not calling for you. I'm calling for <laughs> Renee. <laughs> and, and just have those kinds of interactions form. And when a couple of years later... Craig Marks needed someone to edit the spin alternative record guide. It was only because of that $50 a week gig that he felt confident that I could do the job of editing that book. That you just made me think of is I remember talking to Rob about this sort of thing uh, a couple of years ago and him just kind of getting across the point that <laughs> the economy around uh, 
music writing around magazines and all these things. It's kind of, it always is going up and down and up and down. And what you just described is what I think a lot of people, mm, my age, probably a lot younger than me, maybe like 10 years younger than me. Like that's, they all kind of went through that mill in the past like 10 years or so, but 12 years ago. And yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of nice in a, in a dark way to know that it didn't change that much, but you, but it still has like the benefit of suddenly you're a professional editor. You know what you're <laughs> doing. You can handle these things. It's kind of like you like doing this like necessary grunt work. Yeah. I will say that in the early days of Amoeba records, it probably didn't hurt that we could supplement the $50 a week by selling um, promotional CDs. So that's, that's, <laughs> that was probably a nice side benefit to some of, to some of this. I missed that too. Um, <laughs> that was a, that was a good uh, yeah. chunk of money for me in like the aughts, and now it's like I don't really get sent CDs <laughs> anymore. Does anyone? I don't know. <laughs> Not Anne. <laughs> so how, wait, so um, as you were describing this uh, Bay Area collection of writers, like how much community existed among all of you? A fair amount. I mean, different people were closer with different people, but. And, I, and it was never quite the same as the village voice intellectual community because different people had different levels of knowledge and interest. But I think there was a kind of pride in how many people were clearly gifted and doing things and heading for um, all sorts of potential things. I mean, there's so many other people I could mention. Andrew O'Hare, who I think these days runs Salon. Um, Leslie Kaufman, L.A. Kaufman, an important political writer. Um, it just, it, it was such an interesting time. This was the Bay Area just before it got Googled. And you could really um, see people. Eric Davis was there for a while. Um, I, I guess for a long while, ultimately, I, I left before he did. Um, it, it just, it was an easier place to live than an East Coast city. Everyone had access to, you know, cars and they could meet up with each other. There were events that you could get into. Um, so it was, it was, it was really ideal in certain ways. I'm, I don't want to over exaggerate it, but um, like, the one thing you couldn't do, pretty much no one could do, was live there and support yourself. You almost had to eventually leave the Bay Area to get to the next step. But for a time, I think it was this really important launching ground. Um, I know for Anne, with her book, Weird Like Us, one of the real objectives of that book is to try to capture the dynamism of Bay Area alternative culture in the 80s. <laughs> So where do you move from this point? Like, like now that you're, you know, you're starting as a freelance writer, um, I guess like we're now, I guess like the very early nineties, like what is the next phase for you? Yeah. So Anne got hired by the New York times and left a PhD program that she'd fought to get into at UC Berkeley. John Perellis called her. She said, no, I just got into a PhD program. I can't work for the times hung up the phone. And I said, call him back and tell him you're going to think about it a little more. <laughs> So for about two and a half years, she was ensconced in New York, and I was still getting to the stage of being all but dissertation in the Bay Area. And really, in a lot of ways, getting better as a writer and a little more frustrated as a grad student as I got older. So when Spin started to really want me to do more work for them, I said yes. And I came back to the East Coast on leave from grad school, edited the Spin Record Guide at that point, came back to UC Berkeley for a six-month gig as a teacher, didn't like it, and literally called Craig Marks, my guy at Spin Up, and said, can you create a job for me at Spin? And he did. And so in 1995, in the summer of 1995, I finally joined Anne in New York and started working full-time for spin. Right. I guess this is kind of probably where I become aware of it. Well, you, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because at this time, I'm like 14 years old. <laughs> Wait, so just to double back a bit on what you're just saying. Um, I don't think it really occurred to me quite how much of your cohort, the, all the writers that you've mentioned, or most of them anyway, 
had academic backgrounds. Uh, do, do you feel like that's something that really unites a lot of your generation of music writers? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is reality. And this is also sometimes a real sore spot, you know, on the one hand, there are folks like Michelangelo Matos and Jessica Hopper who will make a point of telling you, I never even graduated from college. Then there are folks like Chuck Eddy who will proudly say, I'm an army brat. I'm a working class guy. That was my upbringing. By and large, however, the majority of the alternative weekly music writing crowd, and this went back to the earlier generation of rock critics as well, had pretty Tony degrees from different undergraduate institutions or had also done PhD level work. They were knowledgeable in cultural studies. They were interested in connecting the music to these other kinds of questions, which made them perfect for the village voice, sometimes a little more imperfect for spin and almost useless for anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I think just kind of thinking about that being uh, a major thread. And I think even the writers that you mentioned who are not from academic backgrounds, like they fit in intellectually, you know, I think Jessica Hopper, certainly. Jessica Hopper these um, days edits books for University of Texas Press. Well, there you I, go. I think that one of the things that is always going to be an issue is the difference between the music writer whose goal is to write to that 14-year-old you just evoked who might be coming from a less culturally centered background and help that person get informed, interested, inspired to discover new things. I know, for example, for Saya Michael, who followed out of another person who started in the Bay Area, who I forgot to mention. (laughs) So Saya was at the SF Weekly first, and we brought her into Spin um, after she wrote an angry letter to Spin complaining about how sexist we all were. Um, Saya- (laughs) Around what year was that? Probably 96. Um, okay. Saya and Charles Aaron, who for a time dated each other, um, and shared this sentiment, both strongly identified with that kid, that 14 year old kid with no access to cool culture or intellectual life for whom a place like spin could be a real lifeline. And I think that's a completely valid reason to write and a completely valid reader to prioritize. But if I'm being honest, that wasn't me and that wasn't what I did as a writer. I was somebody who had gotten, you know, a ridiculously elite education and was interested in taking some of the questions that a cultural studies person might have been asking in academia and and applying them to like an imperial teen record. So, so in your mind, like, who were you writing for, if not basically me? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like I said, I was going to try not to be contentious. But, it's, but, but do you agree with me that it's a little bit built into this, that that, that difference? Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely relate more to, I guess, where, where Charles and Zaya were coming from. Like, I think I've always kind of thought of Flux Blog in particular as something is written to an audience to be helpful to them. And I have no, I have no problem with helping an audience, quote unquote. But I think that in the, I think at the end of the day, I thought of my readers as being my colleagues. I thought of Joe Levy when he was the Village Voice music editor used to say, "The Village Voice music section isn't for people who like music. The Village Voice music section is for people who like music writing," and. Yeah, that feels right. And that notion that it was more important to write for the person who could understand what Greg Tate and Greil Marcus had in common 
even if they didn't like the same records. And that wasn't really the relevant question. The relevant question was, how did they get excited about something and find language to be excited about it and change your categorization of popular music in the language they chose? Um, those ways of thinking about things will immediately make 98% of the readers in the, in the world, if not more, glaze over. <laughs> but, for that, but for that 2%, oh, that 2%, um, you know, you could have a conversation. And, and what was nice about the alt-weekly era was that the 2% felt more like a significant percent for structural reasons. If you were picking up the San Francisco Weekly in Berkeley, you might be doing it at the used bookstore where Jonathan Lethem was the book clerk. You might be selling your CDs to a former member of MX80 Sound who now owned Amoeba Records. There was a sense that to be part of this world wasn't simply to be completely out of touch, but you were connected to people who were doing interesting things. And it felt like there were enough of them, there was a critical mass, and you weren't being a complete snob and isolationist to want to be in conversation with those people. You were making a certain world live, move forward. You were doing it for the culture, in other yeah, words. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, yeah. We all justify what we do, and I'm and I'm I'm not trying to. Uh, I, I don't think that one is better than the other. I mean, I think they all kind of, you know, I think people, you know, as writers, you your your motivation can change a bit, you know, on a day to day basis. You know, <laughs> just having that, like, you know, I think that a bit of a competition with other writers too. You know, someone writes something and you want to like get on their level. I think that the thing that was also going on that meant so much was there was a sense in the 1990s that new voices were coming into the discourse. Some of that was a generational shift. Some of that was the fact that what was happening as indie rock became alternative rock, as hip hop became the mainstream of pop, almost demanded writers being engaged and readers wanted to follow that story. Um, but also it was the arrival of more black writers than ever before, more women writers than ever before. Um, and it wasn't like the doors were being open to them. They were really having to be forced open, but there was an excitement around all these new voices. And I think that was the other part of the mix that made it possible for me to say, ignore that righteous 14-year-old and be more interested in supporting my colleagues. Yeah. Right. I, I, hmm. I think like being part of that community of kind of thinking about a larger, broader arts community, intellectual community, that's really valuable. And I don't know how many people are fully engaged with that idea now. Like, what do you see as kind of being in the void of that, like, uh, alt-weekly zone now? I mean, obviously, what I did was I invented the pop conference to keep this sense going. So, so after the 1990s were done, I had spent six or seven years at the heart of media in New York. I was the record reviews editor at Spin when we were competing with Rolling Stone. I moved over to The Voice and was music editor there as a bunch of new writers were coming into the mix. I freelanced for both those publications and others, but it got to the place where I knew time was up. And the moment I knew time was up, I was now supporting myself writing for GQ of all places, the least likely place for Egghead <laughs> me to write of all time. And I somehow persuaded them to go, let me go to South by Southwest and write about the what Napster was about to do to the music industry. And I, and I, and I was only given like 1500 words and I wanted so many more words than that. And I fought with the editor and they never let me write again. But I knew at that moment that everything was about to change. And it was the equivalent of Craigslist, um, which was destroying the village voice. So at that moment, it was clear that the community that had formed around the village voice and gotten paychecks from places like spin and vibe 
was not going to be able to perpetuate itself. For hmm. Anne and I, the choice was to move to Seattle and take jobs at a fledgling museum called Experience Music Project, where I started the pop conference, and that's a whole other story. But that was that was how I tried to keep the sense of community alive, but in somewhat new terms. Perhaps like the a funny irony now that you've mentioned like not being that interested in being a guide to young people is that you co-edited the spin alternative record. Yeah, book, that's true. Which in turn was incredibly helpful to, to several people, including me. And I know there's a lot of other no, uh, music that's, critics and people yeah, like that yeah. around my age where right. this is like this is like the velvet underground. <laughs> you know. I, I think I actually used that analogy because I, I wrote about like I wrote a blurb for it in a pitchfork thing like like maybe 12 years ago well thank you <laughs> no that's fair and 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 that was quite an enterprise so yeah we'll, we'll talk about that for a second so having only done the $50 a week gig for the San Francisco Bay Guardian Craig Marks decides that Rob Sheffield and I will write the entirety of a record guide to celebrate spins what was it 10th anniversary I think and we're working too slowly for Bob Guccione Jr., one of the least patient people in the universe. So he says to Craig, screw this. You're going to have to bring in other writers so the book gets done faster. Craig is already doing a tremendous amount of editing and doesn't want to take on the book on top of that. So he asked me, instead of co-writing it with Rob, to be the editor of the book and bring in all these writers. Um, so that was a little sad on one level. Um, Rob and I had this amazing um, um, auction where uh, we had a list of like 400 people who were going to be in the book. And I can't remember who got to go first, but whoever picked their first choice, picked their first choice. And then the next person picked choices two and Oh my God, there's a draft. And then, yeah. <laughs> and we just, we just went back and forth. And every time someone claimed one that the other person really wanted, but they just hadn't gotten around to, there was an enormous groaning. It was really fun. And sadly it's now fading out of my memory. Um, yeah. So. Well, I mean, I have it in front of me and the, the list of writers in this thing is out of control. It's just like <laughs> a lot of the people you already mentioned, plus like, like Colson Whitehead's sure. in this thing. James and, oh God, who else is there? There's just a lot of people. Alex uh, Ross. Yeah. Alex Ross. Michael Eric Dyson after Danielle wasn't able to write the public enemy and ice cube entries because she was too caught up at vibe. Um, um, there were people like Will Hermes who would go on to have um, enormous careers. But back then, this book was one of the places where they really um, got national exposure for the first time. There was there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60-odd writers. I kept a, um, a little box with um, index cards on it with the names of each writer and what entries they were doing. And at the beginning of each editing day, I would flip through the box and decide who I needed to bug um, and just kind of keep going until the book got assembled. And the, and the principle was basically that we already knew that alternative rock couldn't be legitimately codified, but it could be sort of quasi-legitimately codified. So, you know, having ABBA be the first entry in the book was meant as what I guess a few years later would be considered a poptimist statement that we didn't consider alt-rock to be a form of rock at all. We considered it a mixture of elements and and contrarian. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think all of that was, you know, when we talk when I, when I say like how influential this would be, I think it really kind of like that really, I guess, Catholic approach to things that got handed down along with it, you know, and also just the very fact that it includes rap that you know, this is like an alternative rock book at the front, the front cover. Yeah, and also just jokes like the role of James Hanahan, who's now an increasingly um, prominent novelist, and I hope we'll only get more so as time goes on. James was was my favorite writer in that book because every entry he wrote was making fun of the notion of seriously reviewing records at all. Um, 
um, he just had so much fun. Um, and I, you know, obviously for, um, Rob was also in full flourish and, and really, um, dazzling. Um, Anne was, you know, able to do her thing in some ways. I'm like the stodgiest element in that book. I'm like, I'm almost in the role of like Dave Marsh or something because I'm, I'm, I'm the grad school guy. I'm the one trying to sort of, you know, plug away and be like, what is alternative rock? Well, I'll tell you kids. Uh, well, you have that, that uh, opening uh, essay yeah. that kind of lays out the project. <laughs> and it, it occurs to me like, 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 you know, between this and other things I've read that you've done and, you know, the things that you're doing right now, the things you mentioned, just like being, uh, you know, just devouring the Princeton record library. Uh-huh. Like, it seems like you always have like a very macro view of things. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for sure. Um, I'm not a musician. I'm not a genre guy. I was a college radio DJ and I hold on to a love for that music. But what I really loved when I was a college radio DJ was playing sets of music and that notion that you not consider a single work unto itself, but you let one thing flow into another thing and you create these unities these connections um and even if they're tangential they get you through the set they get you through the show um i still have that i still love to spend time in different categories so you know for better or worse it was always clear to me that i was not inherently as i would never be a popular writer the way rob or ann are in terms of having that ability to write and generate a big audience of admirers. There's just something too insular about how I think about music. Um, But what I could do is put some shapes around things. And so at different times with different projects, either personally or as an editor or as a conference organizer, I've been able to create these places where you can sort of get a glimpse of just how much there is. Yeah. I th- well, I think it's, I mean, one of the jobs I think of, of being a critic is kind of being the person who's, you know, like, you know, the, uh, the, the people putting like all the, the pins in the wall and the, the string connecting it all. But it's <laughs> Like you're the, you know, yeah, and to be the person who's kind of drawing it all together. I like to do that. My, my favorite New York times piece was I got sound scan to give me the names of every album that as of either 2000 or 2001 had been documented to sell a million copies. And so there were about a thousand of those albums starting from when SoundScan began in 1991. And I just wrote about that multiplicity of what the mainstream was. And I've been doing it ever since in, in one form or another. Before we move off the, the record guide, I have one question. Uh-huh. How did you manage to get pavement over Rob? It probably just was, again, just one of those stupid it was his seventh choice to do something else. And it was my eighth choice to do that. Um, I mean, our tastes weren't that different. Our writing styles were hugely different. (laughs) There were some, there were some artists that only one or the other of us would do. And he has a better memory than me. So you'd have to ask him. Rob has a frightening degree of detail in his memory. When I talk to Rob, he'll, he'll remind me of, you know, moments that, are just completely lost to me. I seem to remember that there were some um, exchanges at the very end, like, oh, you do such a better job at this one. You really should have this one. Um, The other thing that I will note is as time has gone on, it's clear which things should have been in the book that weren't. But the only one that at the time I fully knew was a mistake was the uncle Tupelo not having an entry. (laughs) Mm. And the reason was I commissioned one, but I really didn't like it. So I killed it and I didn't have time to get a new one before the deadline was up because of Bob Guccione jr. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so to the extent I retain, like, you know, my version of a record collector, it's like the editor vexed to the end of time that I didn't get the uncle Tupelo entry in that I damn well knew had to be there. (laughs) You mentioned in the thing that, like, you know, the, the idea was to not make it an encyclopedia. And you mentioned, like, specifically, like, game theory and the X got cut. Right. Which, you know, reason. I'm sure people have hated me ever since who are partisans of those folks. And I, I know that for someone like, imagine being someone like Andrew Bojan, 
Gail O'Hara or Gaylord Fields, all three of whom were working in either copy editing or fact-checking its spin as the spin record guide was being put together. Now imagine being people with tastes as amazing and developed as those three and watching Craig Marks and Eric Weisbart decide they can freaking define the category of indie and alternative music in terms of what's essential. I mean, it was so ridiculously arrogant. Um, And it's not sustainable except to the extent that any editorial project especially one in the days before social media is going to be shaped enormously by the sensibilities of those people who have the power. So for me, randomly, you could argue, but I would say, no, it's true. You know, a group like the embarrassment became this group that it was vital to include and almost build your interpretation around for Douglas woke. It would, definitely have been the X um, or, or who knows who else, um, you know? So yeah, you could play those games till the end of time. It mattered a lot. I feel like there's a value in it being, you know, just it's, it's kind of a snapshot of the canon in the moment. So it's very 1995. And I mean, to me, just the idea that a thing like the X would, I'm not sorry, I'm really more the game theory would not be in there. <laughs> they kind of represent more of an, an 80s version of the canon and just kind of observing these things uh, in different ways, like, you know, the Paz and Jop or the way Pitchfork mm-hmm. and Rolling Stone re- redo their old canon lists, like seeing what gets in and what gets out is interesting. I also think that on a very fundamental level, it's about cultural capital and cultural privilege, we didn't really, and this is amazing to me in retrospect, in 1995, we didn't understand that what we were writing about was not a bunch of outsiders becoming mainstream, but about how in the America of the 1990s, the new economy America, to have access to these kinds of data points was practically a job requirement. How what we were basically describing was a new style of elite culture, not outsider culture. Um, but we didn't have that knowledge, you know. And that's why, you know, eventually we all got bashed on the head by the baffler and people like that for um, being so freaking naive. Um, I think there was a value to that naivete. naivete. I mean, even now, <laughs> when I look around Nashville where I live and I see the kinds of chefs who still think of themselves in that outsider way that uh, an indie label person did in the 1990s. I don't think they're deluding themselves, but I think that we're much more attuned now to what happens and the kind of gentrification that takes place around hipsterism. The music sounds when it comes from a music box. I have to admit, like what you just heard me saying when I talked about hipster neighborhoods and gentrification was my professor voice, <laughs> right? So, so um, over time, I'm less likely to contemplate categories of music and I'm more likely, I'm an American studies professor, I'm more likely to connect certain stories within music to a variety of different historical and political developments. Um, in some ways that really started at my next gig in Seattle, because when Anne and I started working at experience music project, one of the things we got to do was um, do museum exhibits on music. And suddenly it was a really different way of presenting the story of music. It wasn't about should game theory be in the spin alternative record guide, It was about, all right, we're doing a museum exhibit on disco. 
And there's this great story about underground disco in New York in the early 1970s that's just beginning to emerge. But there's also the mainstream and suburban disco and all these other disco stories to tell. How the hell do we do this? For me, that was so transformative to get to work on a project like that and think about um, a very different way to tell the story of music. And, and so my th- transition back from the media Eric to the professor Eric was through this museum job that was in between and let all sorts of stories seem relevant that hadn't been possible for me to work on before. And in a way, that's where the pop conference comes from. And, and I would argue that for most people of the six people who know who I am and what I do, it's probably a little less the spin record guide at this point and a little more the pop conference. But, you know, Wait, so, it takes both so times. The, 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 the museum, like how did you figure yeah. out, like what were the strategies you found to solve those problems, like the disco problem that you were just explaining? Um, smoke weed with Nikki Siano. Um, so like, so like it turned out that the guy who'd been one of the underground DJs and then the first DJ at studio 54 lived down the street on Sackett street in Brooklyn from where Ann and I had had a house for a while. And we went to talk with him along with Vince Aletti, the longtime village voice writer and, um, uh, photography critic who, was helping us with the disco exhibit, the first guy who wrote about disco in Rolling Stone magazine in the early 70s. And and Nikki is is really chilly and he's been burned before. And he finally says, all right, you want to you want to just get high. And <laughs> everything kind of mellows. And so the whole like critic artist relationship that's about like maintain your distance. And back when I was at Spin, I when Billy Joe Armstrong asked me if I wanted to get high when I was writing about Green Day. I thought I should say no. You know, here suddenly it was like, you're not on opposite sides. There's no critical distance. You're actually on the same side. You're trying to tell a story. And and that, and it's not about, I mean, yes, we had Barry Walters do some stuff for the exhibit around great disco records, obscure disco records, the best cheesy disco records. You know, there was room for that kind of listicle too. But just understanding that there could be something enormously satisfying in getting the first neon sign that said disco gold that was photographed for the cover of the first disco record compilation. And to have that in the exhibit would not only add some neon, but just it would sizzle in a certain way. It must have been exciting Uh, just to kind of start working with like in, in 3D, basically, you're working with physical space. You, you, it's a more tactile relationship to the music. Um, you love hearing the oral history. So for Nicky Siano to tell the story of David Mancuso's loft, which he attended as a teenager and how Mancuso would work a song like girl, you need a change of mind and have the lights dim up at this particular moment in the song and have the tweeter arrays switch on at this moment in the song and have the air conditioning flood the room at this moment in the song. And then after when um, our producer was taking Nikki Siano's narration and cueing it to Girl, You Need a Change of Mind, it turned out that Nikki was literally on beat with the record as he told the story. <laughs> like it didn't need to, like you barely needed to like edit the song the you know, is in, in his head. The song was unfolding. Yeah. Things like that. Um, so wait, what was the uh, like, how did the pop conference start? What was the in the kind of the. I guess the initial yeah. motivation, but also like an inciting incident to put it in fiction terms. Essentially, um, the museum definitely wanted to hire Anne and probably half wanted to hire me. So they really needed to find a job for me. And so they were going to do this conference and they said, you could run the conference. And I said, sure. But instead of it being a purely academic conference, this was the summer of 2001. I want it to be a conference that brings academics and non-academics together in basically equal proportions and lets neither side feel like a token presence. And then we'll see what happens. The museum had enough money that I could give a guarantee to some writers to come out 
and do subsequently versions of their talks as book chapters. And we got it started for the spring of 2002. There were some absolutely amazing arguments in the first couple of years between the academics and the non-academics. But what gradually became obvious was that each group was almost moving in the other group's direction out of a sense of necessity. Now, this wasn't necessarily every kind of music writer, and this wasn't necessarily every kind of academic. It was a certain kind of music writer, probably one with one of those Tony educational backgrounds, and it was a certain kind of academic, probably one who'd always wanted to do more public writing than they'd gotten the chance to. Um, In both cases, it was so rewarding to have your sense of community double and triple. And this ultimately becomes Anne and my intellectual community for now it's 20 years. Um, Some of the people in that community, like an R.J. Smith would be a great example, had been part of our world before. Other figures, Rob Sheffield would be a good example, was only sometimes a member of the pop conference community. I think his strong ties remain with people writing about music in New York City. Yeah. But for many, many people now for 20 years, this has been a place where we've broken bread and seen each other work on projects that became books, seen each other go through different jobs, held each other's hands when we didn't have jobs, you know, just all these kinds of things. Um, That's a long span of time. And it would be tedious for me to list all the different people and all the different work that's come out of it. But it's a long list of people. It's a long list of work. It's probably the thing I'm most proud of, that it not only happened, but it continued. Hmm. I think one of the things I I associate with this, and you can kind of tell me whether I'm wrong or not, is I feel like this is kind of where a lot of uh, poptimism ideas kind of started getting real traction in America. Yeah, I mean, there's no question, you know, you go back to the first couple of ones, and in the first pop conference book, Kella Fasane, who writes that Rockism article in 2004 in the New York Times is writing about Jay-Z in terms of why the rapper is something Jay-Z doesn't want to be. He wants to be something more powerful than a rapper. Um, Carl Wilson, I was next to him when he debuted a version of what would ultimately become his Celine Dion book um, in a 20-minute talk on guilty displeasures, the feeling of being guilty about things you didn't like as opposed to being guilty about things you did like. Um, More broadly, though, what I think was going on was it became a space where gifted writers who also like to read books but never stop listening to music would give talks where the music and their words were really playing off of each other. Joshua Clover's concept of critical karaoke was the ultimate embodiment of this, where lots of other people were just singing karaoke as a way of showing they loved music, which is fine. Um, Critical karaoke, the idea was you would talk about a song while the song played, and you had to stop talking about the song the second the song ended. So your conversation about the song had to exactly be the length of time of the song, um, which meant you had to talk pretty quickly if it was a certain <laughs> kinds of songs. But the, but, the, but the broader point was, it was really about thinking inside the music and against the music. And I think what made it exciting was this was a moment when our access to music was getting so much easier a few years after the pop conference started is when YouTube debuted. There was already, as of the time the pop conference started, it was right alongside American Idol. There was the destruction of the traditional record industry and this new version of 21st century music industry coming up. And so all of that made wanting to be a writer writing about music against all these changes, a pretty 
exciting thing. There wasn't a clear outcome. Some years we would have panels like how to write about music for a living, um, you know, some, and, and we'd be a little more self or no, how to think about music for a living. Um, <laughs> um, South by Southwest for eggheads. <laughs> um, but, but, but more often than not, the thing that gets reduced, I think, if you call it poptimism, that characterized the broader sweep of it all was almost each of our participants, regardless of their background, had two things going that they could connect. A big amount of their life devoted to listening to music, but an equally big amount of their life devoted to reading, writing, and being connected to intellectual communities. And that's the, that's the spark. So let's jump ahead to where you are now, because you have a new book coming out very soon, right? Another, yes, another one of my crazy meta projects. <laughs> it's called the, the Literature of American Popular Music. Yeah, the, the, the start of it is songbooks. So I, I took the concept of the songbook and bastardized it. Um, and so the idea is that I would write about books on American music. So I started with one from 1770, um, the New England Psalm Singer by William Billings, and then proceeded 250 years into the present. There's 160 different entries, a little, somewhere between two and 3,000 books get mentioned at one point or another. Um, needless to say, it's a bit much. <laughs> Wait, but, can you, can um, you just for but, a second, <laughs> like what is uh, pre-20th century music criticism like i refer you to chapter one <laughs> so you know the, um the the entries early on include this author of songs for sexually oriented puritans to sing in sunday gatherings um that sometimes then became patriotic anthems and paul revere did the album sorry did the book cover <laughs> Um, it could include blackface minstrelsy, um, broadsheets. It could include, um, how to write a popular song guides by the leading, uh, soon to be called Tin Pan Alley songwriters of the day. Um, there's, there's slave songs of the United States. One of the first important attempts to codify black music by an abolitionist who was also a feminist, Lucy McKim Garrison, who was all of 17 when she began writing about black music for Moody's Music, the leading intellectual publication. She was like the riot girl of the 1860s. Um, There was a lot of those kinds of stories early on and others in the middle. Um, And I had enormous fun going through different categories. How, how long did it take um, for you to research all of this? How long have you been at this? I'm a fast reader, but... Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the fast reader versus fast finder, you know? <laughs> I learned early on in grad school that you should read in a book when you didn't have time to actually read a book. So I definitely did some of that. <laughs> but um, what I was reading for wasn't always the equivalent of why we read a book to exult in it. Sometimes you read a book the way a historian, and that was my PhD training, pages through a box of papers in an archive, right? Like you're working on a history project. And if it was my top 40 book, Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss have donated 170 boxes of A&M records material to UCLA. How much time are you going to spend in each of those 170 boxes? It depends on the box. How are you going to find out whether the box is worth more attention? You better use your finger really well and page through the paper. So what I, what I did with this book, to a certain extent, was treat this enormous set of work on music. And I had the benefit of 30 plus years of reading this kind of books, reading books about these kinds of books, knowing as well as probably any human being alive, which things got mentioned a lot in a lot of different kinds of writing. So I wasn't starting empty, empty handed. Um, I had a strong sense of, you know, why Jessica Hagedorn mattered in the 1990s or 
um, why David Ewan was the great lost hack of the 1940s, you know, things like that. <laughs> um, but still, I had to, you know, each week go to the library, thank God it got done right before COVID, bring home another round of 20 to 30 books, spend a couple of weeks paging through those books, write an entry on, you know, the multiple histories of Cuban music and American music writing and try to get out alive. And so I just kept doing that. It's in a lot of ways, it is my personal version of the spin record guide, but for music books. So wh- where did you, um, <laughs> what did you get out of this? Ideology. Like where did you come out on the other end? I mean, I essentially in the same way that, ideally, although it's not possible, and I bet you share this with me, I would love to be able to feel like I'd listen to every good record ever. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to at least get some sense of every good music book ever. That's what I do. I write music books. I like them. And this is, um, and this is your so, third book on your own too. I, we kind of, we kind of glossed over so, the previous yeah. two books. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a life. You do different things. The funniest book I wrote was, a little 33 and a third book on Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion album, albums that I wrote while I was trying to get my dissertation through the UC Berkeley History Department 11 years after faxing a goodbye to that department. And it wasn't going so well. And they were saying, and they were saying, you're going to have to write it more like a standard historian. I was like, all right, well, then I'll write a book that's not like a standard anything. And I wrote this insane little 33 and a third book that took Use Your Illusion and the um, acronym UYI that stands for Use Your Illusion and compared it to a Nicholson Baker book on John Updike called You and I. <laughs> and, and, I just, and just got crazier from I, there. Yeah, so, I, I read that one. Like, I like that one. <laughs> it stands out among <laughs> that series in, I, I think, in a lot of different ways. And like one of the ways I think most obviously is that you are not pretending to be an expert on guns and roses. There's a section of that book where you were just kind of loosely describing the songs based on your vague memories of them. Yeah. Yeah. The whole principle was when Nicholson Baker wrote about John Updike, he wrote about him without looking at the books again, just based on memory. And I was, because I was feeling like I wanted to be the opposite of a conventional scholar at that moment. I read about Guns N' Roses the same way. So I wrote a book that Guns N' Roses fans couldn't like, and the people who could like it would be unlikely to like Guns N' Roses. And I said, screw it. It's the only book I've ever written that doesn't have an acknowledgements page because I was so bitter at that moment. (laughs) (laughs) That was like, that was like the mid two thousands moment where everything had sort of collapsed. Um, music, music journalism, my personal career, my prospects. So I just kind of, <laughs> I just kind of, you know, spent 30 days writing that book about a thousand words a day. No, I don't know if that's exactly right, but it's something like that. And just tore it out of me. That's, I guess that's like, that's your punk rock book. I suppose. <laughs> in some part-time punk poser way (laughs) like relative to how you've done other things you know just like a complete like just like you know just churn it out throw it out the window you know i suppose so i'm i'm buttoned down when it comes to some of the other projects so you know although i i have I, i i think that in a weird way i never was that far out of the sanctioned realms it was just this illusion that made me sometimes feel like an outsider. You know, I mean, I was at freaking Princeton University, but that said, I never took a music course at Princeton because Princeton didn't offer a music course in any kind of music that I cared about, not even jazz. So um, the joke was that they had once had a jazz course, and so they kept it in the catalog, as, but it always had the words not offered um, next to it on a yearly basis. So the joke was it was jazz not <laughs> offered. Um, was the title of the course. Um, So I always had this weird sense that we were supposed to be knocking down doors and opening space for this world that was inspiring me, whether it was the record I was playing at the radio station, holding on with my hand to the record, waiting for the moment to make the segue, um, or later on the image I'm getting from doing a project on disco or reading through the papers of A&M records, all these kinds of things. 
they all felt like there were stories to be told there that hadn't gotten their full airing. And it felt like a little bit of an outsider identity. But when I'm, when I'm really trying to be honest with myself, I think that what really was the case was there was room for that stuff all along. People were just being blithering idiots not to include it. Um, and so I've been lucky enough to be able to be in the position a few times to help that process along a little bit. I think that one of the really important legacies of the pop conference alongside what people call poptimism is it's made it easier for academics to get gigs doing popular music. It's made it easier for writers to get gigs in academia, for academics to get gigs writing in places like the New York Times. Someone like Daphne Brooks is a great example. She was a young assistant professor at Princeton when we first started the pop conference. So she already had the academic background, but she couldn't write. And over all these years of being part of the pop conference, she's become a really gifted writer and one of our strongest voices. And so that side of it, I think, is something important to to notice, you know. So how how is this kind of played out in your 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 career as a college professor? I mean, my career as a college professor has a few different forms, like any college professor. So the, the, the nature of a college teaching gig is they almost tell you literally in your faculty annual report. So 40% of your job is supposed to be about research, Weissbart. Tell us about your research. 40% of your job is supposed to be about teaching. How's your teaching going? And then there's this 20% we're going to call service which could be service to your department, your university, or your field. How about that? So, so it's literally trifurcated in the job description. Um, and what I found is, by and large, there was some demand that at least a couple of books be university press books to get the degree, the PhD, to get the tenure, to get bumped up to full professor. Now I can pretty much decide if I want to do books at the university press level or other kinds of books. The teaching has had multiple forms. And I think that I don't teach at, I teach at a public university in the state of Alabama with a good number of out-of-state students attracted by the football program, but not necessarily the most bohemian place, probably one of the least bohemian places Wait, I've ever lived. Do you commute to Alabama um, from, uh, from Nashville? From Nashville. Yeah. So like, um, in a normal teaching year, and it's only some years, I'll drive down on Tuesday morning, get there, teach my classes Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and try to be back for dinner on Thursday. Um, so I'll spend Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday either on the road or in Tuscaloosa and the other days in Nashville. Um, it's, a, it's a crazy life. I'm not the only person who does a version of this. My co-editor at Journal of Popular Music Studies lives in Connecticut and teaches at the University of North oh, Carolina at much Charlotte. Much more brutal. <laughs> so she, gets, she gets in an airplane every week and back. Um, it's, a, it's an odd little guild, the academics. But um, yeah, I mean, but if that's the price, I like the teaching itself. I like the, I certainly like the freedom to do books that don't have to sell a million copies. It's, it was never a point of discussion with Duke University Press whether the story of William Billings in 1770 <laughs> needed to be in a book that also included, you know, the story of Jay-Z in 2010. Um, but that remains a somewhat rare gig. And I was fortunate that at the moment I finally finished the damn dissertation, writing it the way UC Berkeley required me to, because professional writers can write to a style if they have to, um, a job happened to open up and I got it. So, you know, that was luck. Um, probably it, it didn't hurt that all those years doing the pop conference meant I had some reputation. But um, any version that lets a writer do something approximating what they want to do around music writing is totally worthwhile and totally valid. That's my belief in 2021. I have seen in so many different ways, platforms that I thought were stable get completely destroyed. I know that you can't take any of these 
places that cut you a check to do your work for granted. And so every year that I get to do some version of the stuff that I want to do, it feels like a gift. It really does. Oh, so uh, how can people find your new book? I don't know. Just search Weisbard. <laughs> we have to remind them of the title. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry, I'm really bad at this. Songbooks, the literature of American popular right. music on Duke University Press, May 2021. Yeah. How's that? And, uh, top 40 democracy in stores now. <laughs> Top 40 Democracy, it's funny that we didn't talk about it too much, but that was my version of Poptimism. I wrote a book on commercial radio formats and how they shaped American music. I put my college radio training aside and only thought about the slickest, crassest, most um, commercially ambitious kinds of radio programs. And then I told stories around people who were connected to those formats like Dolly Parton or the Isley brothers or Elton John. Um, it's a little bit of a stodgy book because I really did have to get a dissertation approved by UC Berkeley. In some ways it might be the stiffest thing I'll ever write, but it was based on some serious historical research. Um, and it does do certain things that hadn't been done before. Um, but if you would ask if you would ask me, you know, ten years before if I would have written that book, I never would have seen that one coming. So, where's, so your two prior book? books is the loosest and the stiffest books, respectively. That <laughs> yes. Yeah. This and I, I think this I think this book swings back in the looser direction. Um, some people are going to like not be able to. I mean, it's six hundred freaking pages long. Um, there's there's not any large number of human beings who can read it start to finish without um, some serious mental flaws. But the, for those who do take it on, it does have some of the same qualities the spin record guide had, which is you won't always know entry to entry what the next entry is going to sound like. There's going to be, there's going to be a sense that the juxtapositions, if you can live with it for long enough, are going to take you in places you wouldn't have bargained. Um, and so on that level, I do think it's a bit of a, a, a bit of a return to form. <laughs> uh, it's good to have these continuities in life. <laughs> we are who we yeah. are. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. I hope that was not too um, self-indulgent and like, you know, gave you, Eric, gave you I just some spent kind an of hour asking you to tell me that basically the story of your career, <laughs> you can be as indulgent okay. as you want. <laughs> this is the moment. For me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs>